O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will punish you for all your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is the word of God. I think I've got this microphone right. As a pastor, there are a few things that uh, cause you to lose sleep at night. One is that you're afraid that you'll go and have the microphone on when it shouldn't be on. Uh, the other is that you're always afraid your children are going to call you in the middle of the service. And it happened to me about a week ago. Uh, I was preaching in the morning, and the phone rings, and my watch goes off. And in the middle of the service, my daughter had called me. She didn't know I was preaching in the morning. So I'm glad to get this microphone underway. Um, you guys need to know that the outline for this sermon series is on page 14. Uh, you might want to turn there and just look through it briefly so you can kind of understand how we're working our way through Ezekiel. Um, the Lord just spoke through Ezekiel in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And before we look at that together, um, I want to encourage you to come and pray with me. And let's pray together that God would allow us to see Jesus and seeing Him to be convinced of who he is in his heart for us, that we would know that he calls us to himself. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we are weak and you are strong. We are dependent and you are infinite. Father, we are short-sighted and you are from eternity into eternity. Father, we are created and you are the creator. You are the one who is good, and we are those who are made in your image and yet have failed to live accordingly. Father, any time we read any passage about your judgment, we rightly shudder before you. And Father, I thank you that you have encompassed the reading of your word today in the truths of the gospel that have been said and sung so thoroughly already. Father, I pray that to a woman and to a man, you would allow us together to see Christ today, to see him in these passages of the Old Testament and to see in these passages your purposes for all time and your purposes for us today. Father, we are women and men who have come before you because we need you on this first day of our week as we look down into the week that is ahead of us and we wonder how in the world are we going to make it. Father, for some of us, our volition has been taken away and we feel already the anxiety of reaction and wonder what that means for us this week. And Lord Jesus, we have just sung 
that you, Lord Jesus, are good and faithful, that Jesus, you are kind and strong. And Lord Jesus, to the women who dare to reach out and touch you today, would you allow your power to go forth to them and would you define them as your daughters? Father, for the men who dare cry out to you, I believe, but help my unbelief, would you, Lord Jesus, turn and tell us that you desire to heal us and that you desire to make yourself known? Father, even in this passage of Scripture, which seems to us to be the darkest of understanding your ways, would you in your kindness reveal to your, yourself to us in such a way that as women and men created in your image, we would walk away from this place in awe of who you are and empowered to live as you have called us to live. Lord Jesus, prepare us to come to your table, that in the hearing of your word and in the feeding from your table, our faith would be fed, and we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be changed. We thank you and praise you for what you're going to do in advance of doing it, because we do believe what we have sung that the Lord is good and faithful. You, Father, will keep us day and night. And Jesus, we can always run to you because you, Jesus, are strong and kind. And we pray this in your name, not according to our efforts in these next 20 minutes, but according to your name, Jesus, we pray this. In your name we pray, amen. All right, listen, we're in the book of Ezekiel, and we're in the third sermon of a series, and this is the first time that I've gotten to preach it. And I wonder if you all are sitting there going, what are we doing in the book of Ezekiel again, and why are we there? I want you to turn to page 14, and I want you to see how the sermons are going to be outlined. For those of you who are wondering, how in the world are these guys going to get through 48 chapters of Ezekiel in one season? I want you to see that we're going to do it in these 12, verses, these 12 sermons. I want you to see that a sermon like mine today is encompassing multiple chapters of the book. In fact, we're going to look at chapters 4 through 7 in these next just few minutes. And I want you to know that the theme of our sermon series is simply this. The theme is the presence of the Lord. And this is how we have defined the presence of the Lord, okay? The presence of the Lord is the ever-present, awe-filled power of God to give life and strength to His people. We're going to leave this sermon series outline in front of you because I think it's hard to follow along without sitting in Ezekiel for a while. And you guys will catch on in the next week or two, but I don't want you to feel lost until then. I want you to be encouraged that this book of the Bible exists in the Bible for you and for me because we need it. And listen, I want you to see why you need it today, why you need it and why I need it. I want to show you firstly Ezekiel 
his acts and his speech in these four chapters, chapters four, five, six, and seven. I want you to see first his acts and his speech, and then I just have two questions to ask you out of this book of Ezekiel. How does the scripture in Ezekiel lead us to be awe-filled, and how does this scripture give us life and strength? That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Ezekiel really quickly. And we're going to look at his acts and his speech to get started. Are you ready? Listen, you've already heard about the glory of God. Chapter 1, Nathan Barzi introduced us to the glory of God. This an amazing picture that Ezekiel kept saying it was like this and it was like this and it was like this because he couldn't describe what it was. It was completely otherworldly, completely transcendent. As Nathan Dick said last week, it was weird. And a lot of you children thought, that's really weird. But did you know that the same gospel writer, John, who studied this book of Ezekiel is going to use those images when he writes Revelation. These images of the image of God that are in the book of Revelation find their roots here. It's incredible what is happening. This book of Ezekiel is written by the prophet who was called to be a prophet. Remember Nathan Dix last week talked about Ezekiel's calling. Ezekiel has already gone into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah has already been crushed by the Babylonians. And Ezekiel is a prophet who is in exile. But he's not just a prophet because he was a priest before he was a prophet. And in his 30th year, the year that he would have begun serving in the temple, God calls Ezekiel to be his prophet. And he says to Ezekiel, I'm going to speak and I'm going to speak to you and you're going to speak for me. And as we saw in chapters 2 and in chapters 3, Ezekiel was overcome by that. He was overcome by that calling. In fact, Ezekiel was angry about that calling because God said, I am going to tell you about the destruction of my city, Jerusalem. I am going to tell you about how I am against Jerusalem. And for Ezekiel, the priest, this was bitter and this was overwhelming and he did not want to do it. When it says that he went and he sat for a week, and it actually says in chapter 3, it says that he was overwhelmed. It means that he sat there and he trembled and he shook and he said, how in the world is this going to be possible? Ezekiel was called to speak on God's behalf, but in the very beginning of his ministry, the very first thing that God did to him was make him mute. In chapters 4 and chapters 5, you see the first 14 months of Ezekiel's acts as a prophet. And you go, I thought prophets spoke. Prophets do speak. But God chose to act through Ezekiel. If you read the end of chapter 3, you see that Ezekiel was told by God that he was going to make his tongue stick to the roof of his mouth, and he wasn't going to be able to speak until God said to him, thus says the Lord. And then in chapter 5, we actually hear Ezekiel speak. But for the first 14 months of Ezekiel's life, Ezekiel didn't speak. Ezekiel acted. I want to show you the three scenes that Ezekiel acted out. The first scene is in chapter 1, and you can see it in verses 1 through 3. Uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Ezekiel acts out the siege of Jerusalem. 
God tells him to go get a brick and carve on the brick the city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel wouldn't have had any problem carving the city of Jerusalem. He is a priest. He lived for Jerusalem. He lived oriented toward Jerusalem and oriented toward Yahweh. He was supposed to carve on this brick the city of Jerusalem. He was supposed to use sticks and dirt. And he was supposed to create in his house the siege picture of Jerusalem in a little, you know... Box on the floor in this image that people would come and witness. I grew up on Lookout Mountain right outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and there was, I know you're not going to believe this, but there was in Chattanooga this thing called the Confederama. And what the Confederama was is that every elementary school age kid from when they were three all the way, or third grade all the way through sixth grade would go once a year to the Confederama And we went into this room, and in this box that was about 10 by 10, there was this this build-out of the War of the Confederacy that happened in Chattanooga. It had Missionary Ridge, it had Signal Mountain, it had Lookout Mountain, it had the Tennessee River. It had little guns that went off and smoke that came on and lights that went on. And I remember as a kid just being enthralled. What Ezekiel was called to do was to build this structure in his house. And every day for 14 months, 390 days, he was supposed to act out what God was doing in Jerusalem. That's what he was called to do. And what he was supposed to do was to build this seed structure around Jerusalem. And then he was supposed to take this iron grate and stand behind it like this with his arm bared. Ezekiel was supposed to stand for God and God being against Jerusalem. And it happened in his house every day for 390 days. Scene two is almost just as weird. Scene two is in chapters four, verses four through eight. And Ezekiel was told to lay on one side and then to lay on another side and to bear the sins of God's people. He was told to lay there as the the lamb might be bound on the altar, bearing the sins of God's people for as many days as the years that God's people had been turned against him. 390, and scholars say that's roughly when Solomon's son ended up dividing the kingdom of Israel and that Israel and Judah were split from then on out. And Ezekiel was bound like that lamb, bearing the sin of God's people. Ezekiel demonstrated God and his strength against Jerusalem, and then he demonstrated Israel's sin, and there was a third scene. This third scene starts in chapters 4 and starts at verse 9 and goes through 17. And he was supposed to live and eat as one who was under siege in Jerusalem. He had to eat bread, and all he could eat was the size of two English muffins. That's all he could eat all day long, and all he could drink was two cups of water. That's it. Two English muffins and two cups of water. How many of you drink water all day long, every day? You know how much you're supposed to drink, and it's not two cups. Ezekiel, for 390 days, for 14 months of his life, ate starvation rations and his body was emaciated after those 14 months. 
He acted this out day in and day out in his house as people came and went and saw him. And the word of what the prophet Ezekiel was doing went on and on. Ezekiel was acting as the people under siege in Jerusalem. This is the prophet. And then the final scene might be the hardest for us to imagine and the hardest for us to picture. And it comes from the fifth chapter. Because the final scene is this Ezekiel emaciated, this Ezekiel muted, this Ezekiel who has been bearing the weight of God's judgment on Jerusalem was to take a sword and to cut all of the hair off of his head and to shave his beard that has grown for over a year. And in the tears and the blood and the humiliation of being shaved, He was to pronounce God's judgment on a third of his hair that would die of the pestilence and of famine, a third of his hair that would die of the sword, and a third of his hair that would be cast to the winds and only a small piece of it hidden in his garment. Ezekiel was humiliated before the people. This is God's prophet. And then Ezekiel speaks. Are you ready for the way he speaks? Because he also speaks in three ways. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 17, he simply says this. And we know that he speaks now because it says, thus says the Lord. And that's the very thing that God said. This is when you're going to speak to the people. He hasn't spoken yet. And he says, thus says the Lord. And he simply says this. This is Jerusalem. Now imagine as a priest who longed to serve in the temple of his God. The words that he is able to speak, this is Jerusalem. God has said, look, Jerusalem was the center of all the nations. And it doesn't mean that there was a map on which was oriented Jerusalem so that everything radiated out from that. It means that God had chosen Jerusalem as the place where he would make his name known. And that gift to Jerusalem was to be a blessing to all the nations, the promise to Abraham in Genesis, right? But what had happened to Jerusalem, what had happened to God's people is that we are told in those verses in chapter 5 they had become worse than the nations. The nations behaved better than Israel and Judah. God said, this is Jerusalem that is being destroyed so that you might know I am the Lord. The second thing that Ezekiel spoke is in chapter 6. And Ezekiel says, thus says God against the mountains. And it actually says, thus says your Lord God. We've talked about this a lot, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh in the scriptures. Here it says the Lord God, capital G, capital O, capital D. And what it means is Adonai, Yahweh. This is specifically the Lord Yahweh speaking. And he says to them, I'm speaking against the mountains and the hills. Now, why would he do that? Because the sin that he was speaking against was the sin of idolatry of the nation of Israel and of Judah. The mountains and the hills were where they went and worshiped, where they fornicated, where they killed their children 
where they offered their children as sacrifices to other gods. And here Adonai Yahweh is saying, I am going to destroy your high places and I'm going to destroy your altars and you who worship there will be destroyed at them. And then in chapter six, he says, so that you will know I am the Lord. And finally, in chapter seven, the verses that Eleni just read for us Yahweh tells Ezekiel, thus says the Lord, the end has come. The certainty that the end has come for the nation of Israel, for Israel and for Judah. And three times in that chapter, he says that they may know that I am Yahweh. Ezekiel was mute. His acts matter that he did. But when he speaks, what he says backs up how he acted. And what he reveals is better understood as who he reveals. This is the God of the Bible. This is our God the one who declared himself in these pages as the enemy against his people who have rejected him. And here we sit, properly so, in silence and in awe. Why in the world does a book like this exist in the scriptures? What does it have to do for us? I want you to think about two questions for me as we begin to soak in the message of Ezekiel. The first question is this, how does Ezekiel fill us with awe? Then you hear that and you're like, duh. <laughs> I mean, that's an awful story. And that's how we use awe all the time. This is awful. This is the exact kind of story why I say I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament, Bradley. And listen, before you go too far, I want you to remember that God says that he never changes, that he has been the same yesterday, today, and forever, that this is the God of the Bible. So how, church, are we filled with awe? Well, the first one's sort of obvious, right? You go, well, this is a picture of God's judgment against his people, and it's awesome. It's overwhelming. It's complete, and it's total, isn't it? God is saying, so that they would know that I am Yahweh. That is his covenant name. That's how he revealed himself through his covenant. I am who I am. When Moses said, what's your name? Who do I tell him sent me? That there is judgment here against God's people. And it is consistent with his name, isn't it? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities to the thousands of generations. But what? But who will by no means excuse the guilty? Right? who will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. Why? That they may know him. The people whom God has judged 
in this story and in Ezekiel and in the siege are those of his people who have rejected him. And he has judged them. And that is filled with awe. Because God is saying, I am the covenant-keeping God that I said I was going to be. And there is an end to this nation. And in verses 1 through 4, as Eleni read, this is the end of the nation. But it is not the end of God's purposes. Because why does this lead us to awe? I want you to pay attention to what I told you about the acts of Ezekiel. You've got to go back and read chapters 4 and the first part of chapter 5 this week so that you can see this clearly because it will blow your mind when you see this. The prophet plays the role in these three scenes. Who does the prophet play the role of? God. Who else does the prophet play the role of? Sinners. Who else does the prophet play the role of? The sacrifice. Do you see this in Ezekiel? In Ezekiel's call to ministry in the Old Testament that the prophet was called to play the role of God, of human beings, and of the sacrifice bearing their sin. You sit there and you go, wait, what? This is in the Old Testament, this picture? Because what is it a picture of, church? It is a picture of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do you see it right there? There's no wonder that as we studied the Gospel of John, we saw over and over that the Gospel story in the book of John was dripping of the images of Ezekiel of the Lamb of God, of the Good Shepherd, of the Temple, of the water, of the Spirit, and I can go on and on. That the Gospel writer John saw Jesus, the one who was the Word of God made flesh, and he saw this one who was God and who was man and who would bear the sacrifice for his people right there. And this is a picture in the Old Testament of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that when we read Isaiah 53, and when we read those verses of chapter, in verses four through six, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we read this section of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, and we see what is being played out before us in Acts, where no words are even used yet, I am moved like Newton to say, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Do you know what is 
awesome and awe-filled and ought to lead us in awe is that this is a description of the wrath that Jesus bore on the cross for you and for me. This is a description of that wrath, you guys. It is amazing. So the last question as we end is this. How does the presence of God in Ezekiel bring life and strength to us, his people? How did the presence of is uh, of God in Ezekiel bring life and strength to those people. Do you remember who Ezekiel was speaking to? Remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. Babylon is hundreds and hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. He's already been taken into captivity. He's by the Kabar Canal when he sees the glory of the Lord. And his little house that's there where he acts out the drama in silence for 14 months is two exiles. How did you get to be an exile in Babylon? There were two ways. One, you obeyed Jeremiah and you gave up. You walked out and you turned yourself in and you said, I see that God's at work and I'm not going to resist it. I'm going with him. You can take me into exile. Because Jeremiah begged the people to do that. But the other way you got to exile was being unfaithful and resisting. And in God's kindness and compassion to you, you represented that hair that in chapter 5, Ezekiel cut off his head and he dispersed it all. He took a little bit and hid it in the hem of his cloak. You were there unfaithfully but in exile. And to both of those, the faithful and the unfaithful, Ezekiel proclaims what God is doing. And the call in hearing this God is to repent. Because God has said, I am done with the nation, but I am not done with my purposes. And I will show you in the picture of Ezekiel what I am about. There will be another prophet, and he will represent me and humanity and the sacrifice for sin. This picture is of Jesus. The apostle Peter calls the church exiles who have been sent out among the nations. So how does the presence of God, this ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God, bring life and strength to you and to me? Well, listen, I think the first thing that it does for us is it causes us to stop and say, man, we got to take sin seriously. Like God takes sin seriously. Praise God that Jesus bore this wrath for you and for me. Did you know that it's unjust for God to punish sin twice? That's unjust of him. In fact, we are told in John 1, 9 that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus paid the price for our sin. That doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously. It means we take it seriously. Listen, the ever-present the ever-present power of God is with us now. How do we know this? You guys know. You've been going to adult ed. The church is the living stones. And who lives among the living stones? The Holy Spirit does. Constantly, always. Jesus said, look, it's better that I leave and I send the Spirit to be with you so that he is always present with you. And what is the job of the Spirit? The ever-present power of God 
to lead us in awe, to convict us of our sin and to remind us of the cross. You guys, that's what we're going to be reminded of in the table in like two minutes. And to go there and remind us of Jesus and strengthen us that we might be the women and men made in his image, obeying him and his word. Look, it also ought to bring life and strength to us that we would suspect idolatry in us and around us. And we would suspect that it's likely that you and I would fall into idolatrous thinking, that we would see other things in this world that we look for for life and that we'd go toward, and we would take this prophecy seriously and we would ask the Lord, show us those things that we are gaining life from other than you. Would you show them to us? I was with somebody this week and this individual said that she had seen some folks who completely rejected what the Bible says about being human beings. But when a certain instance happened, that it was these folks who actually turned and act compassionately and, and prayed for a given situation when there was great suffering. And I would argue that when you see that, when, when you see that and witness that, we ought to ask ourselves, why am I not responding? that way that I know is right. I know who Jesus is. Why am I not responding that way? That is a great place for us to see the idolatry that we are tempted to. But finally, you guys, this picture of Ezekiel gives us life and strength because we will grow in our concern for others who do not know the Lord. Listen, the Lord is serious about himself being made known. The prophet Isaiah has said that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified. He absorbed the wrath. He drank it to its dregs, all of it for any who will put their faith and trust in him, that they might know through Christ who the Lord is. But that day, the day of final judgment, it is coming. You guys, Ezekiel teaches us that forgiveness is real. But it also teaches us that so is God's justice so that we might be concerned not only for his justice, but those of his image bearers that they would know him and receive his mercy that is met at the cross with his grace and his justice. We're going to delve more into Ezekiel. I'm super excited about what we're going to see. I hope that as we sit in it and consider it, we are going to see that this ever-present awe-inspired power of God to give his people life and strength is what we see unfolding in this book of Ezekiel in ways that we never imagined. Will you pray with me as we come to this table?